Hi, everyone. This is Rohan Sadanti, and welcome to the Wharton Digital Health Podcast. It's a podcast where MBAs can connect with the alumni community about the latest trends, company initiatives, and jobs available in the payer provider digital health and investing spaces. Today, we're trying something new and having two guests at the same time from the same company, Vidya Murthy and Mike Kajeski from MedCrypt. Welcome, Vidya and Mike. Thanks. Thank we're you. happy to be here. Hey guys, awesome. We will figure out the nuances of having two people on the phone and I'm sure we'll navigate it uh, easily. We are lucky to have these two rock stars spending some time with us today. I'll give our listeners a bit of background. Vidya is a, a Wemba Wharton Executive MBA grad of 2018. She currently serves as VP of Operations. Uh, Mike was in the HCM program, graduated in 2012. He's currently the CEO of MedCrypt. MedCrypt is a hot company. Right out of Y Combinator, they handle cybersecurity for medical devices. Uh, and we're going to let them tell us all about it. Vidya and Mike, how did I do with the intro? Does that sound about right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Get on. Good, good. All right, well, let's dive right in. Um, can you each kind of give us a brief summary of your career paths before and after Wharton and, and how you got to MedCrypt? We're going to do the origin story of the company a bit later on. So this is just getting to know your career arcs. So this is Vivia. I started out my career studying biology and accounting. And as I was recruiting out of undergrad, I realized the most interesting people were the IT people. So I actually went into IT consulting um, after that with PwC for about nine years. And as I was returning back to America after living in Johannesburg for a couple of years, I joined CareFusion, which at the time uh, was independently operated out of Cardinal House. And it got bought by Beckton Dickinson about a week after I got there. So I spent the next about three years building on their security posture around sensitive data that they obtained for patients and devices. And at that time, as we were getting bought, I kind of had this realization that I wanted more control over my career. And that's what brought me to Wharton and their executive program. So being based in San Diego, I would fly up to San Francisco every other week for about two years to finish up my schoolwork. And as I was coming off of a Wharton venture on a peak at the top of Alaska, uh, Mike sent me a perfect job offer to come join MedCrypt, and it, and it all kind of worked out from there, and I've been at MedCrypt for about six months now. Wow, okay. Mike, tell us about yourself. Yeah, so uh, I have an undergraduate, undergraduate degree in physics, and when I graduated from undergrad, I was certain that I was going to be a high school physics teacher for 35 years. So I uh, got a job teaching physics in a great high school in uh, the western suburbs of Philadelphia and loved being in the classroom with the students, but uh, found that I, you know, at 23 or 24, thought that I wanted to do something where, um, I don't know, wanted to look at other opportunities, something where I could help people, uh, where there was also an opportunity to make enough money to own a house um, and something that was intellectually stimulating. So I, I learned of this field called medical physics, which is the science behind radiation oncology and diagnostic imaging. I figured I would do a graduate degree in, in medical physics. Uh, while I was applying for those programs, I got a job working for a company that built um, new radiation oncology facilities. My job was to do a series of radiation safety calculations for those architectural designs. Uh, I was accepted to a graduate program in medical physics at the University of Pennsylvania. When I started there, I also started a software company to automate my prior job to do the series of, of radiation safety calculations. Um, got a little bit of company uh, traction with that company, enough that uh, June Kinney was nice enough to accept me into the uh, Warden MBA program as an HCM major, even though my background was not typical of uh, your, your, your average Warden M MBA. I was very thankful for her uh, uh, taking a, a bet on me. 
did the, the full-time MBA program, graduated in 2012, ended up um, raising a little more money for that company that I had started and then sold it uh, about a year and a half after graduation to a medical device company called Varian Medical Systems in, in Palo Alto. So worked as a product manager for, for Varian for a couple of years and then uh, left in 2016 to start MedCrypt. Got it. Okay. We're going to dive all, all the way into MedCrypt uh, shortly. We like to set the stage for why a company like MedCrypt needs to exist. So we'll kind of set the stage in the med device industry as it relates to cybersecurity and give our listeners that perspective. So maybe we can start by painting a picture for, for the state of the industry uh, and just sort of briefly how it works. So for example, the FDA's role in issuing guidance, maybe how that shapes the product landscape, just to give our, our listeners uh, an overall view. Yeah, absolutely. So, so when I first learned about uh, cybersecurity for medical devices, it, it was more in the context of how do we secure sensitive data? So where you have patient information or you have social security numbers or, or medical details, that the medical device vendors were more concerned with how do we make sure that this doesn't become a HIPAA breach? Um, and, and I think at the time, call it 2014, that that was kind of the maturity of the legislation. What, what we saw soon thereafter was the FDA actually pushed out multiple pieces of guidance that because they manage the medical device vendor community, they were able to say, hey, we feel that there is something beyond a secure data perspective that we should be having. And since then, they've, they've made it clear that they perceive cybersecurity as a patient safety concern. Um, so, so while the FDA has the direct mandate over medical device vendors only, they've actually done a really great job uh, building a community between healthcare delivery organizations, medical device vendors, security providers, and, and really kind of brought everyone together because the device is only owned by a device manager for so long. And once it operates in the ecosystem of a hospital, there, there's kind of a lot of technological balance that, that has to happen between the different parties. Got it. So maybe I skip, I want to skip to a question I was going to ask a little later, but now that you've laid that out, where does the responsibility lie in cybersecurity for medical devices? So Beckton Dickinson produces something, it goes into the hospital, doctors, nurses, et cetera, are starting to use it. Who, who still owns the device? Could you just give us a sense of how that works? Who maintains it? Who maintains the physical device? Who maintains the cybersecurity is the provide is this hospital system responsible? How does that work? Yeah, I think there's a there's a big difference dependent on the type of device that we're talking about. So so let's take a traditional piece of capital equipment like a linear accelerator in a hospital. Um, once the device vendor sells that to the hospital, that there is there's a lot of perception around it now being the hospital's responsibility to manage the device as well as the security supporting it. And, and I think with kind of a shift in perspective, both from the FDA as well as kind of a maturing in what cybersecurity and healthcare looks like, device vendors have started to own that a little bit more. You, you have something different when you look at devices that never really live in the hospital. So a pacemaker that is in a patient that's in their house and they're getting treatment remotely um, if needed, it, it's very different to say, well, the device vendor owns that, but there's a, a burden on both the patient and provider to actually update it if there needs to be a firmware update or, or something similar. Mike, I don't know if you that. Yes, so, so one additional thought there. I think the answer to your question depends upon how you define um, owns responsibility. Um, I, mm -hmm. I think most people in the space agree that everybody wants patients to be safe and everybody needs to be thinking about cybersecurity. So the responsibility is owned by the hospital and the device vendor and sometimes even the patient. 
But when it comes down to it, I, I think from a, a dollars and cents perspective, who suffers financially if there is a breach of you know, a cybersecurity vulnerability in a medical device? It's not clear to me how the, the hospital would suffer financially. I mean, they're, they obviously don't want devices on their network to be hacked. I, I guess that you know a, a breach of a device in their network could lead to theft of other important information or a ransomware attack or something like that. It's a little more clear to me that if a medical device has a security vulnerability and somebody does something bad with it, that device will very likely be recalled. And recalls are extremely expensive for medical device vendors. And looking yeah. forward with, in the context of new, re, new regulations from the FDA about what security features need to be in devices in order to receive FDA clearance, the hospital doesn't suffer if a new groundbreaking device doesn't make it to market because nobody thought about the security implications. The medical device vendor does. So I, I really think that while philosophically it is everybody's responsibility to ensure devices are safe, from a dollars and cents perspective, it's it's kind of the, the I think it's the medical device vendors that have the most to lose here. Okay, okay, got it. So I got got kind of the macro sense. Another definition we need to establish is what medical device means. So when I hear medical device, I think implantable or heart valve, stent, hip replacement, but maybe only a certain subset of the medical devices require that cybersecurity. So what are the boundary conditions for that controlled word medical device? Yes, yeah, so when we talk about medical device security, we're talking about anything that the FDA would consider a medical device. So that could be a stent, a scalpel, it could be very obviously you know, a piece of imaging equipment, a CT scanner, something like that. It could also be a, a purely software-based system, like a clinical decision support system, or um, not, not an EMR, but some other information system where data is analyzed and you know, clinical recommendations are made. So we target um, you know, MedCrypt toward medical devices that have some element of computing in them and ideally some element of network connectivity. So some obvious things that fall into this category are things like pacemakers that communicate wirelessly with you know, a programmer that frequently communicates over Wi-Fi or a cellular connection to some information system in the cloud, insulin pumps, glucose monitors, uh, the drug infusion pumps, all kinds of imaging equipment, surgical robotics, radiation oncology. These things are sort of the, the really obvious things we need, we need to think about. There have been a couple examples of non-obvious medical devices, or at least devices that were not obvious to us initially. Things like clinical, uh, clinical decision support systems that are you know, pure software systems that live in the cloud or on a hospital network. Or even we had one company call us about a wall-mounted uh, cardiac defibrillator that was not networked and connected to any other system, but it did run an operating system and had an ethernet port on that, that device. And therefore, apparently regulators thought that there, you know, the, the fact that there was an ethernet port on this device meant that somebody could theoretically plug in, you know, a laptop into this thing and do some bad stuff. And therefore security was a concern there. So really it's, it's a very wide swath of the medical device field. Obviously scalpels and stents are not in our purview. But anything with a processor and definitely anything that communicates data over any kind of network is, is right up our alley. Got it. And I'm assuming the trend is moving towards more and more computing power in medical devices. Is that right? So I've more seen, things are becoming connected, I would assume. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen electronic scalpels and Bluetooth-enabled things that you would never think really need a Bluetooth connection. So uh, at some, some point in the very near future, essentially every medical device is going to have some level of connectivity. Got it. Got it. Okay. My, my last question for this section is, is really around making this real for our listeners. 
So we get, you know, the news alerts from Stat News or whatever it is saying, oh, some hospital employee left their laptop in the parking lot and 50,000, you know, uh, 50,000 patients had their data breached. So we, we hear those kinds of stories a lot. But can we get a sense from the med device world uh, of what a breach looks like or what a cyber security attack, how it manifests itself and what a story uh, has occurred in which data has been compromised? Yeah, so in 2016, Hollywood Presbyterian, which is a hospital here in California, um, they, they had an issue where they were attacked through a single vulnerability in a single device in their ecosystem, and the whole hospital was held ransom for, I, I think it was $3.6 million in uh, Bitcoin that they wanted. And what ended up happening is um, it, you have all these patients that are either in the middle of getting procedures done or you have emergency situations that are trying to be triaged, and the, these patients get routed to different um, locations, and they, they couldn't operate. This hospital, because of how uh, mature they were at the time, did not have any backup, so they really had no recourse other than paying these um, these hackers to to really get their information back and to get back online. And, and we see more and more that while one could argue they eventually got back online and if you had backups, you could you could deal with this. The patients really do suffer and, and it's been studied where even just a four minute delay in, in dealing with a patient has a 20% increase in adverse outcomes for their long-term um, well-being. Wow, that definitely makes it real. Yeah, well, one one other uh, co comment there. So, so I think there's there's uh, a, uh, an idea that medical device vulnerabilities need to actually be exploited in order for us as a you know an industry and a community to suffer. And Vidi's example was you know a hospital network being brought down due to a vulnerability. That's just an active exploit of a vulnerability. But there are a lot of examples of medical devices that have vulnerabilities. Um, causing financial hardships for the medical device vendor, even though nobody has actually exploited those vulnerabilities. And a good example of this is, in, I think also in 2016, um, some security researchers found vulnerabilities in a St. Jude pacemaker. And rather than disclosing these vulnerabilities to the FDA, they partnered with a hedge fund and they shorted the stock. And then they went out publicly talking about how horrible these vulnerabilities were and how it was going to adversely affect the St. Jude Abbott merger and at the close, you know, the end of that day, each Abbott and St. Jude had lost a billion dollars in market cap as a result of the discussion of these, these vulnerabilities. And nobody had actually exploited these vulnerabilities. They were largely, I would say, theoretical. Um, both of the stock prices recovered, the merger happened, you know, closed, everything was sort of fine. And then about a year later, um, I, I believe Abbott came out and addressed some, some, not all of those vulnerabilities, some of them they claimed weren't, weren't real vulnerabilities. But that was a really interesting example for me for two reasons. Number one, it caused a lot of pain and heartache for those companies, even without some hacker exploiting the vulnerability. And number two, my grandmother happened, this is like a terribly cliched example, like, oh, I started this company because my grandmother has this problem. My uh -huh. grandmother has a St. Jude pacemaker in her chest, and she heard on Fox News that this vulnerability existed, and she didn't quite maybe have the technological uh, background to know how this affected her. And she knew that I was working on, you know, medical device cybersecurity. And she called me and said, I, I have a St. Jude pacemaker. I heard that ISIS can hack my pacemaker. Should I have my pacemaker removed? I'm like, no, you should not have your pacemaker removed. Everything that ISIS is not hacking your pacemaker. But it was interesting to me to see how just the existence of these vulnerabilities or the perception that there is a risk from them on the part of patients 
can impact decisions patients make about their own health. And clearly, like, you know, a patient that needs a pacemaker should have a pacemaker and regardless of the level of cybersecurity vulnerability in there, um, we just want to make sure that we are minimizing this additional risk of, of security vulnerability. Wow, absolutely. Well, definitely, uh, people are crying out for this, it sounds like, and um, you all are coming at the right time. So I'm really happy to hear that. Let's get to the story of MedCrypt. Um, it's so great to see Wharton folks jumping into entrepreneurship and then, of course, Y Combinator is sexy, but you still uh, would be scaling the company even without it. So give us a sense of the origin story um, and then where you are now with the company. Yeah, so um, as, I, as I mentioned earlier, uh, my partner Eric and I had sold a, a healthcare IT company to uh, a medical device company called Varian Medical Systems in the fall of 2013. So I started working for them as a product manager, and my, my background is in imaging and radiation oncology, not cybersecurity. Um, so in, in the fall of 2014, I started to hear people talk about hospitals being concerned about the patient safety implications of cybersecurity. Specifically, there was, there was one hospital who was approaching multiple different medical device vendors saying that they were treating a, um, a high-profile foreign dignitary for a specific ailment, and they were concerned that a specific country may attempt to do this patient harm by exploiting a cybersecurity vulnerability in a medical device. And this was actually coincidentally right around the time that the TV show Homeland had an episode where some terrorists hacked the vice president's pacemaker in the show and assassinated the vice president. And it was you know five or six right. years after it was in the news that the, the real U.S. vice president Dick Cheney had to have some wireless capabilities in his pacemaker disabled for fear of you know, somebody doing, doing him harm. So I, I had never considered patient safety being uh, affected by cybersecurity vulnerabilities in medical devices. So being an, an entrepreneurial person and, and looking toward what was next in, in my career, um, got together with, with my co-founder Eric and our third co-founder Brett, who happens to be a, um, a research professor at the University of Pennsylvania. And we looked at the problem of cybersecurity in medical devices and we, we noticed two things. Number one, there didn't appear to be, at least in 2014, any regulatory requirements for device vendors to think about cybersecurity or any market forces where hospitals were really asking for this. And, and we hypothesized that both of those things would change. And number two, we observed that you know, business school 101 is your company can really only have one, maybe two core competencies. If something is not your core competency, you should use an off-the-shelf tool or partner with somebody because you can really only have one or two core competencies. And our question was, are medical device vendors ever going to develop cybersecurity and specifically cryptography as a core competency? And I think the answer to that is a resounding no. And that doesn't mean that medical device vendors don't have people who are you know, really good at security in the company. Um, or you know, don't have teams of people that can adequately assess the risk. We just think that medical device vendors will end up choosing to use commercial off-the-shelf products to make these devices secure, rather than trying to invent things on their own. So we started MedCrypt in the, uh, I guess, summer of 2016. Um, we, we raised uh, about a million dollars, uh, about half of which was friends and family. Many of those friends and family came from the, the University of Pennsylvania network, which is great. And then the other half from two venture funds, uh, one Safeguard Scientific uh, in suburban Philadelphia and another Long River Ventures in Boston. And in, in 2016, we didn't really know if we were too early to this problem or too late. We had a pretty, pretty good sense that we were not too late. 
Um, what we didn't know is that for literally the first year of running the company, we would talk to medical device vendors and they would say, cybersecurity is not a thing. Not like cybersecurity is important, we have it under control. We had device vendors tell us like, nobody has ever asked us about cybersecurity. We don't need to put security in these devices. They're on a hospital network, nobody cares. So it really felt like we were, you know, banging our heads against the wall for the first year or so. And then the FDA slowly came out with, you know, revised guidance telling device vendors what they need to be doing on security. And then those same device vendors that told us, you know, in 2016 it wasn't a thing, told us, oh, it is a thing and we totally have it under control. And it's really been in the last year or so that device, most device vendors now have people in place whose titles are things like director of product security, who have comprehensive strategies for how to secure their existing product base and how to ensure that new devices they're developing are secure and are really taking a proactive approach to this. Um, th this has really been driven largely by two entities, one that the Mayo Clinic, who's very forward thinking about the cybersecurity devices they buy, and the other being, being the FDA. And then uh, just, just finally, we, we accepted a spot in Y Combinator's winter 2019 batch, so we're, we're going through Y Combinator right now. It's really been a, a great experience. Um, I know as a, as a healthcare entrepreneur, I was previously skeptical of um, Y Combinator's ability to add value in a healthcare setting. Sure. They, they historically have been very consumer focused, but so far it has been an excellent experience. The, the advice and direction that they give you is incredibly helpful, even for you know, Eric and I who um, have you know, successfully started and sold a company before. Yeah. Wow. What a great story and the timing and sort of the, the attitude um, on your end to do all that. I think Y Combinator, I understand your skepticism, but it seems like based on where the tech giants are moving, and the fact that healthcare is 17% of our GDP, maybe 17% of Y Combinator's portfolio will be healthcare someday. Who knows? But it seems like maybe they're, they're, they're coming into the game, albeit a bit late. Um, can we just talk for one second about the, having Vidya join the team? So I like to highlight women in healthcare, especially in leadership roles. Mike, you could have gone out there and recruited any man for that role, potentially with a background in med device or what have you, but you chose Vidya. Um, and she's climbing down this mountain and she realizes it's a great fit. Could you two just talk about the match and, and sort of why and how it occurred? Yeah. So, so, so first I, I would say that I, it's not that I hired a woman for the role. It's that I hired the best person that I had talked to for the role. Um, and it just yeah. happened to be, to be Vidya. Um, we really think that a, a cybersecurity company that is led by people who understand medical devices and the way they're developed is, is really important. We, we think that there's an opportunity for a, a security, uh, a healthcare first security company. And I, I initially reached out to Savidia through, through LinkedIn thinking, hey, she works with Beckton Dickinson, they're a prospective customer, we should talk. And when we first met, she was in the process of, I believe, just starting the, the Wemba program. And I, I think we, we really found that we saw the problem in a very similar way. And uh, we both, you know, we stayed in touch and, and talked every, you know, month or every quarter for, I guess, like a year and a half and found that we were, we were coming to the same conclusions about the way things were going. So as soon as we raised our second round of funding and had the ability to make a non-engineering hire, she was the, the first person that I reached out to because I really hadn't talked to anybody who I thought had as um, compatible a view on the problem and the right solution to it um, as, as, as Vidya does. That's lovely. And Vidya, you were willing to take the leap, huh? Yeah, I, I think we, we had this two-year courtship where, I mean, a random Wharton alum in San Diego reaches out and you're like, oh, I guess I'll, I guess I'll talk to him. We'll see what happens. And, and for two years, we, we just kept in touch with each other. And, and every time it was more and more of like, this, 
I mean, my takeaway from B school was you, you no longer pick the opportunity, you pick the person and the, the, the enthusiasm with which Mike was, was approaching the problem really resonated with me. And it, and it demonstrated to me that not just it's a viable business option, I think we could all do really well from, from what it is that we're trying to accomplish, but, but thinking more about what you want your legacy to be and, and who you want to be working with as you approach that. And, and this just seemed like a, a great opportunity to, to mutually accomplish something. Yeah, yeah. Well, I love hearing that partnership. Um, talking about the opportunity a little bit more and getting back to MedCrypt, um, can you give folks a sense of differentiation? So the average Joe Schmo like me who hears about cybersecurity for med devices, one probably thinks, oh, won't Medtronic or Beckton Dickinson, why don't they do this on their own? And then the other thing is, oh, uh, doesn't this already exist? Must, must there already be cybersecurity? Well, what's so different about MedCrypt? So could we just kind of tackle those two for the questions for the layman? Yeah, yeah. So I think um, our, our origin story kind of kind of goes directly to it. I think the biggest differentiator is that we're all medical device people. So everyone in some capacity has has had some direct impact on on the medical device industry. And and I think understanding what it means for a device to operate in a hospital setting or clinical setting is actually really critical for how you design security. Um, and, and I think having a perspective that takes that first is, is what differentiates us. If you say, why wouldn't Symantec kind of pivot into healthcare and take this approach? I, I think the, the answer is that Symantec doesn't understand what a hospital use case is and to really change their service offering is, is probably well beyond something they're really going to be focusing on. Um, and to your, to your first question of why wouldn't, why wouldn't a medical device vendor just solve this themselves? I, I think there are components that a medical device vendor will solve on their own, but if we look at the way technology goes, it, it used to be that healthcare was so sensitive with their data, they could never use an external party's data center, and they had to have their own, and they had to manage it themselves, and they had all these special requirements. And, and today, every device vendor uses Amazon Web Services or Azure or pick your cloud provider. They're no longer taking this route of it has to be done in some proprietary way that's really special. Um, and, and I think similar to that, you, you see a trend towards finding the path of most efficiency and most efficacy will, in general, as Michael alluded to, pick the service provider that's really focusing on this as their core competency. Got it. Got it. Well, uh, I would love for med device to specialize in med device and for cybersecurity folks to specialize in that. And, you know, we actually have both sides of the house covered. So I, I hope this grows. Um, Something we hear when we kind of talk about startups is we, we want to learn about the vision and wh where you all see things going. So the, the question that uh, is kind of popular to ask is, what do I need to believe um, in order for this company to succeed? Like sort of what needs to come true in order for this company to succeed to go from a million dollar company to a, to a billion dollar company? Um, so what, what mega trends do you think, you know, you would love to play off of in order to really scale MedCrypt? Yeah, so I think there, there are three beliefs that you have to have. The first is that computers will play an increasing role in healthcare, and that's sort of not debatable, I think, right? Um, the, the question is, like, will humans continue to play a, a, an ongoing role in healthcare? Um, computers and, you know, networked devices will have a, a very important role in healthcare. Uh, they do today, and they will continue to do so for a long time, and that will, that will only increase. Um, the second thing you, you need to believe is that cybersecurity will continue to be a concern in general in computing, right? Will people decide to stop hacking things? Probably not. Will we find a way to write software that is perfectly secure? Probably not. Um, I, I think that those, those two assumptions are, are almost in, indisputable. 
maybe the one that is that we're taking the biggest risk on is the the assumption that the needs of the healthcare industry around cybersecurity are sufficiently different than the needs of other adjacent industries so as to require a healthcare first approach to cybersecurity. And by that I mean a pacemaker and a thermostat are actually pretty similar in terms of the computing hardware that they, they work on, the way the software is written, sometimes the same operating system, same, same processors, same workflow. The question is, will security software that's designed for a connected thermostat also do a good job in a pacemaker? Um, and, and admittedly, this is the, 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 the hypothesis we're making that is maybe less, the, the least clear. But to me, there's, there's so much evidence to suggest that pacemakers are, are so important, so mission critical in their function, that you need to make different trade-offs around cybersecurity than you would on, on a thermostat. So the example that I like to give is, if you have a credit card transaction where something looks a little fishy, you don't allow that credit card transaction to go through. Your fraud detection system stops the transaction, you call the customer, you say, is this really you? And if it is, you move forward. Well, what happens if you have a patient with a pacemaker and they're on a cruise in another country and they urgently need a, a change in the settings of their pacemaker to survive? And that pacemaker all of a sudden gets an instruction to change settings from an, an unknown source. What do you as a pacemaker vendor design the device to do? you design it to refuse that connection because you don't recognize where the source is coming from? Probably not, right? You probably, I think in that example, I'm not a cardiologist, I'm not a, not a, a pacemaker engineer, but I imagine what you do is you design the pacemaker to accept the instruction with some you know, minimal level of authentication, and then you flag it and you send it to somebody and say, hey, look into this, because you don't want the patient to die in the meantime. So these sorts of trade-offs, and there are dozens of them that we could go into, to me, suggests that healthcare really does require a, 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 a different approach to cybersecurity, even though the processors and the, the software and the ones and zeros are really the same. So our goal is to not just secure pacemakers and insulin pumps and, and you know, uh, glucose monitors. We think there's an opportunity for there to be a semantic of healthcare. And if you look at it from that perspective, it's a really big opportunity, right? Cybersecurity and healthcare in, in uh, overall I think it's been measured to be something like you know 900 to a billion 900 million to a billion dollars in revenue in, in 2017, projected to be something like 10 billion in 2022. I wouldn't be surprised if that's a low a low figure. And there there's not an obvious leader in in that space at the moment. There isn't a company that is thinking about nothing other than security and healthcare. And we're we're aiming to be that company. Yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. Um, well, Mike, you're you're leading us into the next section, which um, Talking about TAM and you're getting everyone's uh, chops pretty excited because even uh, I, I didn't even really talk about this podcast much before we're recording it right now. And people already know about MedCrypt. So not just from uh, they want to work there, but they want to invest. So can we just spend a little bit of time on that section um, so we get give our viewers a sense of it? So let's maybe start with hiring. Um, I know with startups, uh, there's cyclicality with fundraising and how that's tied to hiring. But can you give us a sense of maybe what you're thinking for hiring um, and we, so we can just get a sense of whether people can get in the door, even if that's uh, interns? Yeah, so, so yeah. first, thanks for those very kind words. Glad, glad to hear that people, people know about us. Um, yeah, <laughs> Vidya, you, you want to talk about maybe our, our, our growth plans? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so so as, as Mike alluded to, there isn't a clear leader in this space. So we're actually looking to, to get a little bit of help to make sure that we have really 
positioned ourselves in a way that that kind of leaves as little as possible on the table for our consumers. So looking at doing some pricing exercises and really ensuring that we're aligned with what the market can sustain and, and some of our branding questions. So we're, we're looking for, for support in that space, likely to similar to kind of the summertime when, when school lets out, we, we should be in a position to, to be able to fund a couple of internship positions at that time. Okay, that's great. And if you're open uh, to talking about fundraising at all, you were, uh, Mike, you're alluding to Y Combinator and maybe how they guide you through the process. I'm sure I would get in trouble if I didn't even ask about fundraising on this podcast. Yeah, yeah, no problem. So, so um, we raised a round of funding in the middle of 2018, which means we've got cash in the bank for, for the foreseeable future. We're, we're in a good good situation right now, although uh, most companies that go through Y Combinator end up raising some amount of capital after the program. So our, our focus right now is, is getting through the, you know, the, the current batch of YC and then evaluating what opportunities we have sometime this spring. So there's not, there are not concrete fundraising plans, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if, uh, if, if the YC um, program culminates in some fund, funding event in, in mid-19. Got it. And when does YC end officially for you all, the, the program? Yeah, I think the, the demo, the last demo day is like March 19th or sometime around then. Coming up okay. Got it. Got it. Well, that's excellent. Um, I mean, this has been fantastic. We've really gotten an overview of the space. Uh, we like to give our guests uh, in closing some a chance to kind of give any last thoughts. Um, that can be advice for Wharton MBA specifically, or it could be other companies or people you want to highlight in the space. Kind of, I'll, I'll lead it up to either of you um, to, to chime in there. Maybe Vidya, if you first sure so um so i think for me i i see healthcare is it, it oftentimes gets a bad rap in terms of being attractive as an industry and and what we've seen what used to be a very slow moving 13 years to make a change in the actual industry we, we've seen massive change happen in the last five years and as mike alluded to specifically in the last kind of six months to a year where um, where cybersecurity has become something meaningful for the, the community and, and folks are really starting to talk about it. And, and I think for me at least, the driver that brought me here is the Wharton connection um, and then having kind of a skill set coming out of the MBA program to really pursue something that is off the traditional path and to be able to risk assess it however I deem to, to see that it's a choice that, that really will, will bring me kind of that multi-way win as Stu would say and, and really position me for, for kind of long-term success. I love hearing the positive attitude. We just came from the healthcare conference and people like to complain in healthcare conferences. Uh, and I love that your takeaway for MBAs is actually look at the math, the track record shows uh, a faster arc of adoption and, and change. So thanks for sharing that. Um, Mike, if you have a last word, you want to chime in? Yeah. One last thought for, for uh, your listeners who are, uh, evaluating other you know career opportunities going forward and what they're going to focus on. Um, I, I know I'm, I'm sure a lot of your your listeners have already decided that healthcare is an area they're focused uh, you know, they're interested in. I think traditionally a lot of people from Wharton that go to work in in healthcare assume that things like product management or product marketing roles inside medical device vendors or pharmaceutical companies is sort of the obvious application for your your business training. But but I would argue that a lot of the innovation is not it's no longer around the actual clinical treatments or the drugs themselves. It's around the way that those treatments and drugs get to patients, the way that our, our system charges for those. Um, th things like you know, what Amazon is doing in healthcare and the number of uh, you know, healthcare information technology products are being built on, on top of things like Amazon Web Services. Somebody could build a really interesting career in healthcare 
working for some of these, you know, ancillary technology companies supporting uh, healthcare itself without actually working inside a device company or a, or a pharma company. So, so you know, th think outside of the the traditional sorts of internships and, and product marketing and product management roles you've seen your your uh, you know other alumni do. There, there are lots of really interesting ways to contribute and, and uh, improve healthcare without being inside one of those companies. Great. Well, it's it's fantastic advice, and frankly, um, you two have, are you're a, you're a sort of a stalwart example of leveraging the MBA community and the UPenn community. So, really, thank you for highlighting that. And also, I think folks are going to be knocking on your door pretty soon, one way or another. Uh, partnerships, hiring, fundraising, what have you. So, really, wishing you both the, the most continued success. We can't wait to see MedCrypt in the news, and I'm sure you all are going to be scaling it. Again, we've got Vidya Murthy and Mike Kajeski from MedCrypt. Uh, thank you both so much. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us.